Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I host Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Brighton is a pioneer in women's medicine and an award-winning board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist and a clinical sexologist. She is the best-selling author of the books Beyond the Pill and Healing Your Body Naturally After Childbirth. A fierce patient advocate, Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and hormones. She's an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor in the femtech industry, and considered a leading authority on women's health. Her new book titled, Is This Normal? Judgment-Free Straight Talk About Your Body provides medically accurate answers you've been dying to know, but are too embarrassed to ask. In this conversation, Dr. Brighton answers questions from women and members of our community about things such as irregular periods, weight gain, excess hair growth, decreased libido, relationships, hygiene, and more. We discuss systemic cultural issues like the lack of sexual education in the United States and its knock-on impacts, beginning with my question, why are topics related to women's health considered so taboo? Dr. Brighton also sheds light on conditions like Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism. She explains how insulin affects hormonal balance, the relationship between menopause and libido, and offers specific protocols to impact overall hormone health. Now, if you want more information, you'll find integrative and functional medicine-based programs with doctors like Jolene Brighton, Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald, and Mark Hyman on topics such as gut health, longevity, menopause, and perimenopause, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, all in Commune's course library. You can sign up for 14 days for free all access, including more than 100 courses on health, spirituality, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. Also, I would really appreciate it if you support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. In fact, if you screenshot your review and send it to support at onecommune.com, we will gift you a month of commune membership for free. Pretty cool. Lastly, if you prefer the video format, you can watch this episode and others on the commune YouTube channel. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Jolene Brighton, great to see you. Welcome back to the Commune Podcast. It's been a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for today's conversation, especially knowing like how much homework you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to be rigorous. Um, so, well, first off, congratulations uh, on your new book. I know the gestation process of that project is is always long and arduous. So, well done, and uh, you know, particularly with this book. So, it's called "Is This Normal?" Uh, Judgment free, straight tra- talk about your body. Um, and uh, yeah, just congratulations. Well done. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah. So, you know, this book really confronts um, many of the questions that women have about their hormonal health, about libido, their menstrual cycle, postpartum health, 
um, that they've been made uh, often to feel too embarrassed to ask about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited and looking forward to kind of demystifying um, some of these topics as we get into our conversation. And, and connected to that, um, I've gathered uh, a bunch of is this normal questions um, from women in the commune community, uh, mm-hmm. some of our coworkers, my daughters, um, and I hope I can pepper those in kind of throughout the course of our conversation because I'm sure they'll just kind of naturally come up. But maybe we can first begin by sort of addressing uh, our American schizophrenic relationship with with sexuality. I mean, you know, on one hand, you know, we can summon virtually every imaginable kink in the palm of our hand on a whim with this device that I'm holding in my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, there is tremendous stigma and shame yeah. uh, around sex and women's health and the topics that I mentioned before. So why are so many of these topics related to women's health considered so taboo? Well, I think, you know, one part of it is for as long as we've ever been taught about our body, we've taught that we're taught that it's a source of shame, that Mm. we should be, we should feel ashamed that we have periods. So we should be ashamed of the things that happen postpartum as our body recovers. We should be ashamed if you don't have a baby and are able to just get up and clean the house and do all of the things that you do. We're also taught to be to be ashamed about sex. And that's pretty universal. Like no matter what your sex is, you are taught, like sex is something that we don't talk about. Uh, Everybody does it and you should just know how to do it, uh, but we're not going to talk about it. And so I think it's pretty pervasive uh, throughout our society, this concept of shame. And if you consider that your average clinician isn't going to be doing work to really unpack their own shame, their own bias, their own baggage. They're bringing that into the room. So when you meet with a provider to talk about these questions, sometimes what you're met with is actually their own their own baggage that they haven't processed yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's actually interesting. It's connected to one of the questions that I got. Um, and uh, and I've asked all these women if they're okay with me sharing their names and everyone was was fine with it. So there was one from a woman named Leda, age 53, living in Los Angeles, says, is it normal to have an OBGYN who doesn't really know the nuances of hormones and, postscript, to get really annoyed by that? (laughs) (laughs) It certainly is common. And based on how they're taught, I would say that it's a normal experience because they're taught that they're hormone experts and yet they're also taught that, you know, there's no such thing as a hormone imbalance, right? I hear that Mm. parroted a lot. And then they'll say something about hypothyroidism, which is an imbalance of thyroid hormone, too little thyroid hormone. Or we'll hear about insulin resistance, which is an imbalance of insulin hormone. And so I think the unfortunate thing with your, your doctor shouldn't get annoyed at you for asking for help or advocating for yourself. But I think there is a sufficient amount of ego that goes into being a doctor, right? And I think this is an area that I've had to work on, that a lot of my close friends and colleagues have had to work on, is that we're taught, like, you're the doctor, you wear the white coat, like, they shouldn't question you, and like, you you know all of these things. That even in my training, I had more of the, like, you partner with your patient, but 
there is when you get into medicine, especially as women, there it's it's tough, all right? And like sometimes the way that they see like you, you put on this tough skin and you're tough and you, you know, you do all of these uh things that are really based in ego and it doesn't it doesn't translate well and it doesn't serve the patient to bring all of that into the room. And so I'm very sorry that your doctor got annoyed with you. Um it's very common. It happens a lot. It seems to be that some doctors, rather than saying, this is the end of my knowledge, the end of the road where I can help you and I need to refer you to someone else, they instead are like, you're the problem. It couldn't be me that's the problem. And I'm just irritated because um, while I expect you to know everything and bring it to me when it's a problem, I also never want you on Google and never to investigate your own health issues. Mm, yeah. Is it normal... Um for a primary care physician to refer someone specifically to like an endocrinologist? Does that, does that happen or is that not really something that, that occurs? So it does happen. There's also this great issue in the United States where we have, we have voids where there aren't specialists, there aren't medical providers, there aren't people yeah. available. So if you live somewhere rural, you may not have an endocrinologist or that endocrinologist might be a couple hour drive. And so maybe your PCP is going to try to help you as much as they can because they know about that limitation. Then there's the PCPs who are like, your symptoms aren't real. Your labs look normal. There's no reason to refer you and yet you don't feel normal. And so that can certainly happen as well. They should be, in my opinion, once you get to a place where it's like, this person's having some kind of hormonal disorder, I can't figure it out, or the labs are starting to appear that they're not optimal, not completely abnormal, it should be a good idea to get them over to someone else who specializes in that, who can really, you know, see it through their own lens. Mm, yeah. So another question about education. Um, is there a lack of sexual education and human development, particularly in the United States? And, and how does that compare to education standards in other countries? And then what are the knock-on impacts of a thorough education in human development? Yes. So this is an excellent question. And this shocks a lot of people. Um, even like my editors who went through the book were like, this can't be right that only 18 states require medically accurate sex education in the United States. And for everyone to understand, if it's not medically accurate, it's not accurate. What is it? It's not based on biology, physiology. It's a lot of gatekeeping of information. So within the United States, we don't have, we don't have accurate information. Um, can you guess how many states actually talk about consent? It's part of the curriculum. Uh, I, I think I read it in the book, but it was um, incredibly low. It's either 10 or 19 or, or something like just, eight. It, eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Incredibly, incredibly low. So consent isn't part of the conversation. There's right. not medically accurate information being taught and it's very fear-based. So let me ask you, what what do you remember from sex ed? Like, what did you walk away from with sex ed? I mean, virtually nothing. Um, but this, of course, uh, perhaps speaks to my long-term memory more than <laughs> the actual what was taught. Um, Fair. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I remember, look, you know, learning about the basic reproductive organs um, and... You know, this was 
folded into, I believe, like my homeroom. You know, this mm -hmm. was not a, a particular part of the curriculum that was established. It was sort of a box that, that needed to be checked. And I, I remember looking at what appeared to be very androgynous looking um, overhead slides that were projected. <laughs> and, and yeah. That was okay. It. So I was back in the projector days too. No shame with that. <laughs> um, and, and that's about it. I mean, certainly there was no conversation about hormones at that point, but you know, of course this was maybe 1980. Um, you know, my daughter's are actually they do have a little bit of sex education and it's mm -hmm. sort of baked into human development here at least in in los angeles so you know it's uh it's also one course that talks about reproductive systems but also you know drugs and other things that you know mm -hmm. might be relevant to a teenager yeah yeah well the reason why i ask is because you know, when you ask the average person, they're like, you know, don't get pregnant. STIs are bad, um, right. really scary. And it's a lot of fear-based information. Um, there's also just like really basic. So there's some people that um, they didn't learn anything about anyone of the opposite sex. It was like, go to this room or go to like, I was talking with someone, they were like, go to a trailer. Like we had to like be led <laughs> yeah. to this other place. It was yeah. part of PE and, um, you know, women learned about women things and, you know, men learned about men things and we didn't talk about it. Um, and so why I bring this up is because the focus is on, you know, sometimes there's the abstinence only focus of like, you know, whether it is we only teach abstinence or abstinence has to be you know, heavily part of the curriculum that comes in. There's a lot of fear. Um, so a myth that I talk about in the book is you can get pregnant any day out of your cycle um, mm. or any day out of the month is sometimes the way that they're, that they're told. Um, and then it's the like STIs are so scary and be afraid. And, you know, there's the condom on the banana. Maybe people saw and they don't even know why they put a condom on the banana. <laughs> they're like, but you, that's like something that you do. And that's the U.S. system. And what we see from the U.S. system is that we have high incidence of teen pregnancies, of STIs. When you ask people, what was your first time like, they usually have regret and remorse. They don't report mm -hmm. that it was enjoyable. And they usually are having their first sexual encounter at a younger age. All of this compared to other countries that take a much different approach. They take a more pleasure-centered approach, so less fear-based. And they focus on consent. So the Netherlands, for example, toddlers are being taught consent. Whenever I talk about this, people are like, whoa, you're sexualizing children. I'm like teaching a toddler that they are asked first before they're hugged is not sexual. Like consent happens in this really simple way. Do you want a hug? You said no. We respect your body. That's your body. It's your choice, you know, whether or not to accept that hug. So we look at countries like the Netherlands, Germany, which have implemented medically accurate, pleasure centered. So that is, we're going to make, we're going to talk about why do people have sex? They have sex because it's fun. Like they have sex because it's fun. So we're going to make you literate about how each other's bodies work and make it so that the conversation is around Let's have fun and keep it safe. Those people tend to know exactly why you put a condom on a banana and why it is so important to always put a condom on the banana. Whereas in the United States, people are like, I don't know, I saw it, but I don't remember what it was about because it was linked into fear. 
And mm. when you're linked into fear, it's it's very hard to integrate information, to retain information, especially, you know, if you ask people like, what was sex ed like? And they're like, it was so traumatic that I, I don't, I didn't ever want to talk about it again, or I can't even remember because I just tried to block it out. In these other countries where we're seeing that they're having consent is, you know, part of the standard, pleasure is forward. They have, so what's interesting, what's really interesting is that a lot of the goal in some of these abstinence-only curriculum is that they want monogamous relationships. They don't want people having a lot of partners. That is achieved with this consent, medically accurate, pleasure-centered conversation. We hmm. see that there's a tendency towards monogamy, delayed sexual experience. When you ask people, what was your sexual experience like? They look back and they say, that was fun. They have open communication with their parents and that. I think is priceless. And this is something in writing my book, this book is not for children. I just want to be really clear. It is like sex ed for the adult. But one of my goals is that parents read this and they become the experts in their own home. You know, as you said, we have these, we have these devices where we can look up anything. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of people are going and getting their information. Um, I mean, even I just, I joke, like, don't look at my browser history because in researching this book, I'm like, where are people getting this information? Why are yeah. they? I had to rearrange my desk in my office so that it was towards a corner. So if a child walked in, they would not see something. Because sometimes I'm like on a website, I think it's legit. I'm like, oh, this is where some of this information is coming. And then a video pops up and I'm like, oh, I, what just happened here? Um, and so to understand that like, that's me in my 40s having this like, how'd I even end up here kind of situation? And I think like, oh my gosh, what if I was a teen? And I'm trying to like find this information about what's normal about my body. My hope is that the parents become experts in their own home so that when the questions come up, that you are the resource your child access first. The countries that have the lowest incidences of teen pregnancies, of STIs, of um, sexual violence against women, they're teaching these curriculums of consent, of pleasure, pleasure first, which is like sex isn't just for a man, but it's, you know, sex is an experience between individuals and they're just communicating so much better with their parents, which as a parent, that's like, that's my dream is that the uncomfortable conversations, my child feels comfortable enough to be like, you know, I don't know this, but my mom, she'll have an answer for me. Like she'll be able to help me with this. It's so interesting that the abstinence-only fear-based approach doesn't actually lead to the results that it is supposedly seeking. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the point that you're making is that pleasure-focused sexual education actually leads to healthier, uh, a healthier relationship with sex, uh, delayed time in, in, in that first encounter. Um, but also just a, 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 a more positive um, interaction. And, you know, what you say about, you know, parents um, really having more agency. I mean, I had a experience with my youngest. I have three daughters. Um, mm -hmm. So this is obviously a very applicable um, conversation. Um, and, you know, I picked my youngest daughter up at dance um, one day. This was not too long ago. And she's 13 and she got into the car and she's like, oh, dad, uh, I just got my period. 
And she said it as almost as if she was, it, it was so prosaic, you know, as if it was like she was reporting the weather. And yeah. it was like a really emotional moment for me because I was like, oh my God, that is so great that she feels comfortable enough just to yeah. tell her dad that about her body. And it's like, I, I want to applaud, also, but I don't want to mess up the audio. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it's okay. Cause I was driving, you know, I picked her up, she got in the passenger seat and I was driving and she just said it. And, you know, I was, I was so emotional about it, but I was just trying to like, you know, keep it cool and keep it together. And then we had this, you know, very, very level headed, normal quote unquote conversation about it. it was like, how do you yeah. feel? And, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, so it was, um, of course, you know, that's my third daughter. That's my third go around. It wasn't always, you know, that simple and that easy. Um, but you know, you know, so, so much of, I think our culture is based kind of in this, you know, fear kind of Abrahamic religious based concept of like, that sanctifies like a, a virgin that gave mm. immaculate birth to the son of God, you know, and, yeah. um, and that, you know, the senses and the body is, is base and vile and something to be sublimated. And then of course that whole sort of tradition, uh, there of fear and guilt. I mean, the old Testament basically reads like a sexual regulatory manual. Um, if you get into, <laughs> um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and some of that stuff. So it's like, you know, really kind of evolving our culture uh, to meet particularly our children, you know, where they are and, and what their needs mm -hmm. are. So, um, okay. So I want to ask you uh, some questions that came in to so this one. And I, I think also this just have to say like yeah. gold star dad, like, I'm just like, can you just like <laughs> celebrate you for a minute? The fact that like your daughter just jumped in the car and was like, Hey, I got my period, like zero shame in your household about doing something that half the population is doing at any given time on a cyclical basis. And she like, I just think yeah. you really, uh, you really should be applauding yourself. I think it's amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So this, uh, question, uh, came in from, uh, Amber in Boulder, Colorado. She's 30 years old. And I think this, you know, may lead us kind of organically into this conversation around, uh, endocrine imbalance and some of the um, upstream uh, causes of, of hormonal imbalance. But here we go. So she's she self-identifies as being kind of an active 30-year-old woman from Boulder. So she says, I am experiencing irregular periods, weight gain, and excess hair growth. Is mm -hmm. this normal? Oh, so my first question would be, have they always been irregular? Because if they've always been irregular... And you've got this excess androgen picture, which is the hair growth, then odds are we're looking at polycystic ovarian syndrome, especially mm -hmm. when you're seeing the weight gain with that. So PCOS is also what this goes by. That's the acronym. Um, I do talk about this in the book for anyone who's curious. So PCOS, to get that diagnosis, we need two out of the three criteria, which is are you having irregular periods or missing periods? So that's an ovulation. So, so everybody knows, in case sex ed didn't say it, ovulation comes before menstruation. Ovulation is what's necessary for you to have a regular period. So that's one criteria. The other is excess androgens. And so androgens being testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, DHEA, these are what people often call male sex hormones, but men and women have all of these hormones. It's just 
different balances of them. So those are the two that she would be matching, you know, presumably. I'm not her doctor. The third would be polycystic ovaries, which is you have to see it on ultrasound and it's not super useful because they're not always present. And in fact, they're not cysts, they're follicles. They're eggs trying to mature, trying to get to ovulation. Um, but because mm. of the dysfunction of insulin stimulating the ovaries to secrete androgens and not getting the brain ovarian communication, we have those anovulatory cycles. Now, the weight issue, that's not your fault. I think this is so important because doctors will say, oh, well, you gained weight. That caused your PCOS. False. That is not what caused PCOS. We don't totally know the cause, but we do know there are women who are totally lean and still have PCOS. Now, if you are gaining weight, that can be because of insulin resistance and inflammation. And so while you're active, you also have to look at what's going on with your diet. And that's not to say like, oh, it's because like you're eating poorly, but it may be more of like, you have to shift to match your body's needs so that you have better blood sugar balance and so that you have less inflammation. So you may need to eat more anti-inflammatory foods like omega-3 rich foods, things like cold water fish. So salmon, sardines. I know not everybody loves sardines, but trust me, Pinterest has you. There's some of the most economical <laughs> ways and they're nutrient dense. I yeah. don't personally love sardines or anchovies, but knowing how healthy they are, I integrate them <laughs> in different ways. So yeah. Um, are these the smash? They sometimes get categorized as the smash fish, right? Uh, yeah. Sardines, no, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, herring, I think it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, eating those kinds of fish. And then when you say you're physically active, um, you're in Boulder. And so I always ask questions like, (laughs) are you mountain biking and are you, or are you strength training? Like, and so this is important because I think you should do activity you love, but for all of us, we need to be maintaining muscle mass. It is one of the best ways to maintain insulin, our blood sugar and optimize our hormones. And the last thing I'll say mm-hmm. is to also look at your adrenal health. Uh, in the book, Is This Normal? I have quizzes and protocols to match what's going on with your hormones. And I walk through how to take care of your adrenals because your adrenals and insulin are really the foundation of your hormonal health. And with that, the adrenal glands can also produce androgens via DHEA. And so that can also lead to the excess androgen system of system, symptoms Excuse me, of mm-hmm. the hair growth on your face. Mm, yeah, interesting. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a reductionist Newtonian billboard, bill, billiard ball way of, of looking, of posing this question or this statement, but does insulin resistance cause excess testosterone production and does then excess t- testosterone prevent uh, the ovaries from producing other hormones, essentially estrogen and progesterone. Is that a, would that be a cascading effect of how like a hormonal imbalance might happen? Yes. So in women with PCOS, when you have the the elevated insulin, that stimulates the ovaries to produce testosterone. And then you're right. That's exactly the cascade that it leads to. And that is something that we see, um, you know, really is at the crux is this insulin inflammation issue. And that's Mm. not what, you know, that's not where a lot of medicine goes. They go first to like, well, let's use birth control so that you bleed regularly. And like, so we can control those sex hormones and make it so that you don't have hair loss on your head and hair growth on your chin, chest, abdomen. But the problem is, is that 
PCOS that's mismanaged, which if you're only using birth control, that's mismanagement because there's this entire component that's leading to cardiometabolic issues. So diabetes and heart disease become big concerns, not to mention dementia, which we know is associated with poor blood sugar regulation. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the root of so many of these chronic diseases are, are metabolic syndrome and, and blood sugar issues. So, and those are obviously re related to insulin resistance. So in insulin resistance seems to be one of the primary endocrine imbalances. What are some of the other common hormonal imbalances the, that you see? Mm, so as I was talking, there's the foundation, right? The pyramid of adrenal health and insulin. Right above that is thyroid. So when we're talking women's health, women are at the highest risk of developing hypothyroidism, especially after age 35. So it's a very common one for us to see. And then on that pyramid at the tippy top, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So PCOS is about 10% of the population. Those are the people that we're catching and we're diagnosing. That's that excess androgen picture. But we also see issues just in the general population of insufficient progesterone in the wake of normal or sometimes excessive uh, estrogen. So this lends itself to those PMS symptoms that people have been led to believe are normal. They're common but they're not normal. And unfortunately, women with PCOS, because they're not ovulating, ovulation is the only way to make sufficient progesterone. They can also fall into having that, like, I don't have enough progesterone. And they're dealing with that picture along with the excess androgen picture. Hmm. Okay. So sticking with the thyroid for a second, is hypothyroidism essentially the inability for the thyroid to make particular hormones think T3 and T4, and are, are those related to metabolic health? So this is a great question. The most common cause of hypothyroidism in the United States is a condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune mm. condition. You destroy the cells of your thyroid gland. It now no longer can produce sufficient T4, which then gets converted to T3 out in the peripheral tissue. So like your kidneys, mm. your uh, liver, your gut will convert it into the active form, which is T3. That's the most common cause. But what we can also see is there can be conversion issues. So you can't get from T4 to T3. We can also have resistance where you can't actually use that T3 as well. So for example, we need vitamin D and vitamin A to use T3 at the cellular level. And so we don't see a lot of vitamin A deficiency happening, but we certainly see a lot of vitamin D deficiency happening. Mm. And then, you know, to bring it back to the other hormones, without sufficient uh, progesterone, we can't use thyroid hormone as well. And if we have insulin resistance and inflammation going on, we also can't use thyroid hormone as well. So if it's not the primary, which is that you know, you're, you've destroyed the uh, gland. And so the common cause being Hashimoto's, it's not that. We have to look at the other reasons that uh, that could be going on, which comes back to like a nutrient-dense diet and, you know, our inflammation and our ability to convert this. These hormones really matters on, when it comes to environmental toxins as well. And when you're talking about metabolism, absolutely. So, you know, I say thyroid is your mood, your menses, your metabolism, your motility of your gut, it affects every single system in your body. And one of the most common symptoms we see with hypothyroidism is that you're gaining weight. 
So your entire metabolic system is slowing down. Your entire system is slowing down. It's why you're tired and you're cold. You're not producing that energy to stay warm. And uh, that is certainly going to lead to weight gain. And these are people sometimes where their doctor's like, exercise more, eat less. That's so bad. It is. That's usually bad advice for everybody um, to just move more and eat less without actually understanding what's going on. Um, And yet with hypothyroidism, that can really make issues worse because as your thyroid starts to decline, you lean on those adrenal glands for more support in that energy production, in controlling inflammation. And now you're stressing them out because the environment isn't supplying enough food and you're exercising more. That Your adrenal glands are like, we must be under threat. Like something bad is happening Mm. right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. is Hashimoto's um, uh, associated with any kind of lack of nutrients? So I think we hear about iodine being and having enough iodine in the diet being mm-hmm. related to healthy thyroid. Is that true? And you know, if so, what are some of the foods that we can consume that can support a healthy thyroid? This is such an excellent question because you're absolutely right. We need iodine for thyroid health. But in the conversation of Hashimoto's, what we understand from the research is you can actually cause a flare if you go in and you supplement with someone with iodine. So people are always like, oh, you have thyroid problems? Just take iodine. If you have Hashimoto's antibodies, thyroid peroxidase um, is the biggest one, or TPO that we see. You can also have thyroglobulin, so you should be screening for these. If you're positive for those antibodies, then what we see is that if we supplement with iodine and you have a selenium deficiency, which is more common in the United States than an iodine deficiency, you will go into a flare. So your autoimmunity Mm. will get worse and you're going to feel worse. You're going to have more brain fog, more joint pain. Um, You're going to find you're more fatigued because it's as if you're sick, but the illness is you, your body is attacking. So iodine can be helpful, but we want to make sure that we have sufficient selenium with that. And so one of the best foods is actually seafood because fish is going to deliver you not only uh, selenium, but also iodine. So you're going to get both of those coming in. And as we were talking Mm -hmm. about the fish before, those are also going to have omega-3 fatty acids, which is going to help with the inflammation as well. So if you want to go the iodine route, I would say definitely look at, um, you know, bringing it in through food where you're also getting that balance of selenium. You also find selenium in Brazil nuts. It's one of the most popular, but understand that the soil matters very much in how much selenium you're actually getting. I'll hear people say, just eat three Brazil nuts a day. And I'm like, I love that idea, but you don't actually know the soil content. And then the last thing I'll say is that in Denmark, they have actually they actually did a study, um, and I think it's interesting these countries that are collecting all this data off their populations. What they found is that when they introduced iodized salt, the incidence of Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism increased, which is mm-hmm. another way that we came to understand that like more iodine is not better for thyroid function. Um, and in fact, you know, for people who are like, oh, I think my thyroid's kind of sluggish, I should supplement know that we use high dose iodine to shut down thyroid function in the case of like Graves disease. So it's very much one of those Goldilocks nutrients. Hmm. Such an interesting response. Thank you. I want to stick with 
the thyroid for a second because there's a uh, question about it and it's it's um i think the question is is it might fall slightly out of your purview but i think it's related to the general conversation so let me get to it so this is from karen age 55 from miami florida and she has a she puts a little background here so after my thyroid cancer partial thyroidectomy my -hmm. endocrinologist prescribed synthroid to suppress the thyroid to avoid potential cancer growth in other parts of the thyroid. I felt my libido decrease substantially while taking Synthroid. I'm not sure if it was in my head or not. I tried natural uh, natural thyroid hormone and I think it changed, but was this all just in my head? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you live in your body and that means you're the only person that knows what's normal. <laughs> and while we, you know, while we have like, all of this research, and we know a lot of things as doctors, we don't know the individualized experience. And I don't think there's enough respect for that N of one of like, this is what's true for me. So yeah. Synthroid, also called, uh, you know, the generics levothyroxine, it's a synthetic T4. With synthetic T4, you have to convert that to T3. If you've had cancer, you've gone through all of these treatments, I mean, that's that's enough for your body to say like, let's slow it down. We want to keep you safe so we're not going to make as much T3 because we want you to hibernate and heal. So your body is always taking care of you. Now, what's interesting is that you switched over to, uh, you know, a natural, which is natural desiccated thyroid hormone. That comes from a pig thyroid gland. By the way, for everyone listening, I have Hashimoto's and I am on a natural desiccated thyroid hormone as well. Um, The synthetics don't work for me. And this has been trial and error. Even though every doctor out there will be like, it's the same, it should work. That wasn't true for me. So with natural desiccated thyroid hormone, you're not only getting T4 and T3, but you're getting T1 and T2. And these are hormones that the thyroid gland makes that we don't have a whole lot of research on. In fact, there's a lot of people out there saying like, if they don't do anything, like they've not been found to be, you know, have any biological activity. So who cares? You don't need them. I always laugh because I, I am old enough to remember when we said that about the appendix or when we right. said that about the microbiome. And the microbiome That's was right. just a bunch of freeloaders. They give you a little bit of B12 and vitamin K, but like, you're, you're, what is, who cares about those bacteria? Yeah. And so or the to- I'm or the tonsils. always like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah or tonsils. Right. So yeah. I am always very cautious uh, in that the body doesn't do something for nothing, right? And we understand from an evolutionary perspective, if we didn't need something that's costly to make, we wouldn't make it. We wouldn't continue for all these generations to continue to make it. So there's a reason. There's a reason. And we just don't have enough evidence right now to say, hey, hey, here's all the reasons. But we got, like, hopefully in my lifetime, we know. But that could also be what is going on. It may also be, and so just, you know, in my book, there's an entire chapter about libido. Um, It could be an entire book, but I gave it an entire, it's a big chapter because women's libido, it's really complex. And having gone through cancer treatment, having gone through surgery, um, that journey in itself can, can tell your body, like the environment is just not safe right now. And even though we are like pleasure, sex is fun. Um, your your ovaries and your uterus are like that's for babies. Um, and so sometimes hormones <laughs> will shift, saying, "Hey, now's not a good time to procreate." And so let's let's dampen things down. 
It's also when we are in stressful seasons, it's not abnormal to find that your libido diminishes. There's some people who have sex because they're stressed and they're, you know, when it comes to women, they're a little more of like the the outliers, so to speak. Both are normal. But for a lot of women, when stress goes high, their body shuts down like any any lovemaking agenda whatsoever. And that's normal to have that happen during a season of healing. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's stick with the libido for a second because okay. another um, question from Colorado from Adra. So is it normal to experience a low libido in a committed relationship or marriage when you live together? Or is there something hormonally going on that contributes to low libido? Mm. So I have a whole quiz in that chapter to help you understand like, what are the things that um, I simplify this model called the sexual excitation and inhibition model? And that whole model, I call it the gas pedal, the brake. And that whole model talks about like the things that get you excited and the things that inhibit you. And as we know from the research, the things that inhibit you are way, way more important than the candles and the music and the lingerie <laughs> and all of that for women. So um, part of it could be the inhibitions that are now happening. So we all start out, I talk about this in the book, we all start out in new relationships, like it is hot, muy fuego, we are into it. And um, it matches more what we see in the media of like, wow, we're just like, you know, we look at each other, we're making out, like we're having orgasms, like it's all fantastic. I think about sex all the time. That's normal. Then as people cohabitate or even just you spend six months with somebody in a relationship, that starts to shift, right? The excitement of something new isn't there as much. And then here come the things that you maybe were overlooking before, but they are inhibitors for you. And so sometimes inhibitors can be things like your body image, um, how you view yourself. They can be uh, this, the threat of pregnancy. So they can be those kinds of things, but they can also be not feeling supported by your partner or feeling like, you know, you're caretaking for your, you're mothering your partner more than you're in a partnership together. And I know, you know, sometimes people are like, well, like, you know, you should be taking care of each other. There's a point where women, they're like, I'm feeling more like a mom than a partner. And that's problematic <laughs> because I can't yeah. separate that. And so um, I like to explain it as like the, you know, the, the there's a train and the train is carrying the sex signal and we've got these tracks, but on the tracks, maybe there's some blockades laid down. So maybe you had a really stressful day and you were just hoping that like your partner had managed to like follow through on picking up dinner that day. And you get home and they're like, oh, sorry, I just totally spaced it. You can cook something really quick, right? Blockade, because that's another stressor. So the, the train track is your nervous system blockade in the nervous system. Then maybe you're like, I need to have a conversation. Like I had a bad day. I need to tell you about something. And they're like, not now the game's on blockade. And this is not conscious. You are not consciously Mm. saying, well, oh, you, you wouldn't talk to me. Therefore I'm not, I'm, I don't want anything to do with you. This is what's happening in your nervous system. Then maybe you're like, man, like, I'm just like not feeling good today. Like in my body, maybe you're feeling bloated. Maybe like, you know, somebody made a comment about your body on the internet or something that just like reinforced the negative body images that all of society has been telling you your entire life. And you're like, I don't even want to get naked in the lights, like at all, like, and that that's there. Okay. Again, nothing's conscious. The game's done and they come over and they're like, oh, I know that like, 
when I touch her this way or I say this to her, like this gets her in the mood. Well, you just try to engage the excitation. You just try to get the train to go, but the nervous system has too many blockades. And now the main sexual organ, which is the brain, is like, I can't even hear that. I can't mm. even hear that. And this is where, because women are so complex um, and in the partnerships where we, we tend to run into these issues can be heterosexual partnerships because men, they don't understand the complexity. They're not that complex. And they're like, so because I didn't do this one thing for you, you're withholding sex. She's not withholding sex. Her nervous system, her hormones are making it so she doesn't have the ability to receive, even if she's like, this is going to be pleasurable. You know, she knows this. She's having a really hard time getting there because of all of these things. Now, the other thing that I'll say is that there's also this framework of, you know, two archetypes, so to speak, of spontaneous and responsive sexual desire. And spontaneous is what everybody thinks a libido should be like. Like spontaneous is like you got sex on the brain. Um, this is what we think of like a lot of men are this way. Um, we tend to do this in society and in medicine where it's like men have a strong libido and women have a you know low libido. And if it's anything else, like something's wrong with you. And that's not true. Because you may be somebody, you may be a woman listening to this being like, oh my God, all day I think about sex and like I'm in the grocery store and I'm fantasizing and like that's me and that's normal. That's a, more of a spontaneous desire. It doesn't take much to flip the, you know, switch, so to speak, though, as I've demonstrated, it's not really a switch. Um, <laughs> and so that is that archetype. Now, when you compare yourself to that archetype, which is everything we see in the media, you think I have low libido. Or if you compare yourself to beginning a relationship, you're like, I have low libido. We have to mm. ask the question, is it truly low libido or is this your normal? Is this normal for you? Because if you have responsive desire, this is where I say like things have to get going before things get going. Like you have to, the, the tracks are clear and the train already has to be leaving the station. And then like the brain and the body is like, okay, yes, we like this. Okay. And you're not going to be the person who initiates. You're not going to be the person who's like, hey, like, you know, my partner's looking good at like, you know, I, I want to go initiate sex as much as you're going to be the person that when you get enough stimuli that you're like, oh, oh, okay, yes. Like this is an option. I'm, I'm into this. You don't have a low libido. You just have a different archetype in that. And it's so important to communicate to your partner. And this is where we get yeah. these discrepancies of like, oh, my, my partner and I's libidos, they're not matched. Friend, no one would leave the house if they were matched. Like that, that, <laughs> like, that would be problematic. Yeah. But also it's not that. It's that we have to have these communications about how complex it is for women. We've got what, you know, desire type are you? Then we've got like what inhibits you and, and what does actually um, excite you. And then we've got all of the hormones and life on top of that, right? Yeah, yeah. So you give a, an example of a, in the book of a couple that essentially creates a recurring uh, Google invite yeah. <laughs> um, a meeting for sex every Thursday. And, you know, I sort of understand the core intention behind that because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm in a very, very long term relationship of 35 years and, you know, life becomes uh, very transactional naturally yeah. within the course of that relationship, particularly if you have kids and you're working and all that stuff. So there is a, you know, this idea of like, we're going to make date night and we're going to yeah. put it in the calendar every Thursday in order to, um, you know, to keep the passion alive. 
But I, th- I guess the flip side of that is thrusting this kind of superficial um, idea onto what is not something that really can be planned can also mm-hmm. be detrimental. So how, what would you advise there in terms of uh, kind of that idea of date night? Is that a good idea? Yeah. Okay. So scheduling sex can be great. Okay. And scheduling <laughs> date nights, that can be great if that works for you. Um, the example I gave in the book was a patient who was scheduling it and just doing it because she was like, if I don't do this, my partner's going to strike. My partner's going to cheat. It wasn't, right. she didn't even like it. It felt daunting to her. And, um, and it was fear. It was coming out of a lot of fear. That is problematic. Um, on the flip side, there are people that absolutely their lives are so you have three kids, like that's that's a lot. Like their lives are so busy that things have to get on the calendar. So space is created. Now, what can be tricky here is that that can work, like that can work for some people where they're getting excited. Um, I would say send sexy texts, um, so long as like your children aren't going to see them. Um, you know, send things like uh, you know, leading up to that event. Like maybe you take a picture of like some new lingerie you bought or like some some new thing that like you want to experiment or use. And so ways to build up that anticipation and make it fun and make it so it's not daunting for you. Where it can work against you is what I call the sexpectation. Like the expectation is that you must have sex. And so this is why Valentine's Day is a huge turnoff for many people is because it's this pressure that you have to have sex. Now, what is very good to know about the research is that a pleasurable, satisfying session doesn't have to end in orgasm and doesn't even have to end in sex. So I have an entire chapter called Sex of All Kinds just to like illustrate that like, again, the way we're taught in sex ed is that vaginal penetration is what sex is. And yet there's a lot of things that really people define as sex. Sex is Mm-hmm. whatever sex is to you, but also to understand that you never have to have intercourse to both be satisfied and happy. And as much as I'm a fan of orgasms because they have so many health benefits and they'll literally help you live forever, like they're amazing, um, they're not totally necessary for you to be satisfied. And a lot of people in the research report, like that's not the most important thing. In fact, the most important thing is feeling connection having empathy, like it is these much more deeper rooted things that um, require intimacy, like real intimacy. And so I think scheduling is great. I think making it exciting in different ways that work for you. And I think you also need to reduce, like remove the like sex expectation and be like, this is just mm. about our time and whatever happens, happens. In the book, I have a pleasure mapping exercise of going through and, and doing anything but touching genitals to understand the other ways that like bring you and your partner pleasure is just a way of exploring and understanding and being curious. And that can be really helpful if you've been in a long-term relationship because things change and we change. And so things that bring you pleasure, those are going to change over time as well. Hmm. Great. Um, I'll have to add orgasm to my longevity protocols. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I want to ask you more about that off, <laughs> offline.
Related to libido and menopause, okay? So this is a question from Jody from my hometown of Brooklyn. Um, she's 52. Is it normal to have an increased sex drive during menopause? And maybe as part of answering this question, you could just address menopause more generally around what is happening hormonally as women enter perimenopause and then menopause? And then what is the relationship there between menopause and the libido? Yes. Okay. So perimenopause, that can start roughly about 10 years before you enter menopause. And menopause is considered normal at age 45. So before then, primary ovarian insufficiency or some other diagnosis is coming your way because menopause shouldn't be diagnosed until 45 or later. And what menopause is, is the cessation of ovulation and menstruation for a year. 12 wow. consecutive months have to happen before you can get the diagnosis. And on that one day, you're in menopause, like this is menopause. And after that, you're postmenopausal. So right. you've, so you've passed menopause. Is that essentially you run out of eggs? So it's very interesting because as new research comes out, we're not necessarily, like we've always thought we're running out of eggs, but now we're starting to find that there's stem cells in the ovaries. So it begs the question, yeah. are we really running out of eggs? And then there's hmm. this other question of like, well, why we're living longer. Why are we still hitting menopause at the same age? Like that doesn't make any sense either. And so what it is is that your brain and ovaries have they've decided that we're done ovulating. Um and you know what we think right now and I'm just like really cautious in saying this cuz I just feel like we're going to get more research and more intel. But what we think mm. is that okay, there's no more viable eggs left, so therefore you're not going to ovulate and if you don't ovulate then you don't menstruate and that's what's leading to menopause. But it really, it's a big question mark that I have of like, why hmm. is it that we're living so much longer, but nothing has changed about when we go into menopause? Like it's been consistent. So um, so that's menopause. With perimenopause, um, that during that decade, so that seven to 10 years, as your ovaries are thinking about calling it quits, I sometimes say it's like a kid learning to drive a stick shift where the hormones are kind of like, go, wait, no, oh, no, go, go. And it's just that really choppy ride for a while because the ovaries are like some months deciding to ovulate, then maybe they ovulate, but they, they don't make enough progesterone or they don't ovulate and then you have no progesterone. And so that leaves estrogen unchecked. We're not sleeping. We're having hot flashes. We're having brain fog, which by the way, the hot flashes, the brain fogs, the misplacing your keys, these things that people say, oh, that's normal. That's part of perimenopause. These are not normal. These are early signs of brain dysfunction. Your brain is struggling. And what's coming down the pipeline is dementia. But because this is another place in medicine where they just act like, oh, well, this is what women go through. This is totally normal. It is common to have that experience, but it is not normal. As we now come to understand with the majority of women being the dementia patients, like we need to pay attention much, much sooner. So perimenopause, then we go into menopause. Why do some women, even though maybe their estrogen has tanked, um, and we can talk about what the hormones do postmenopausal, but the big thing I'll say of why some women are like, yes, I am like, I am really in the mood. They know they can't get pregnant. So the 
threat of an unintended pregnancy can definitely inhibit you from getting in the mood, from staying aroused, from being able to achieve orgasm. And mm. you'll hear a lot of women that after they have a hysterectomy, after they um, you know, go through menopause, they have a situation where they cannot get pregnant, that they're like, I'm much more interested because now that mm -hmm. inhibition has been removed. It's off the train track. It's not an issue anymore. Um, the other thing that can happen sometimes is that women get a lot more comfortable with their body. It is something that I observed in my 40 plus year old patients, you know, way back I was much younger and I'm like, man, they all are just like, I don't care. I love my body. I'm comfortable in my body. And I was always like, I remember my thirties, like every day being like, aspire to be like a 40 plus year old woman because they're so much more comfortable in their body. Whereas I feel like your twenties and thirties are still like very much being like, oh, am I fat? Like, what is going like, because you see all this messaging and you're still really influenced. And so that is something else that happens is that as women get older, even though society's trying to be like, you don't have value, you don't look like, you know, this like, you know, model of what we think is beautiful. Women are like, I don't care. I don't care. I know my body. I feel comfortable and confident in my body. I know what brings me pleasure. I know how to communicate about my body. And so that shift can be really empowering. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So I just want to make sure that actually I understand. So when a woman ceases to ovulate, the ovaries, which are generally responsible for producing the, the overwhelming majority of like estrogen and progesterone, although it does get produced some other places, I think, but, mm -hmm. but essentially the production of, of those hormones goes down, but there's also pituitary gland-oriented hormones like FSH, et cetera, that is not going down. And so this is creating a little bit of imbalance in these hormones, and then that leads to some of these knock-on um, symptoms. Is that a relatively fair understanding of what's going on? Yeah. So... Uh, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, is what tells the ovaries get an egg ready. And that in perimenopause, especially late perimenopause, because you won't always catch it in early perimenopause, that's going to be elevated. The brain is going to scream at your ovaries like naked egg. And the ovaries are like, I don't care, mom. I'm not listening to you. I, I will not clean my room. Like that kind of attitude, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. They start to rebel a little bit. Um, and so – we can see that's going on. You may in perimenopause still be producing estrogen. Usually the symptoms that we see coming up in early perimenopause, the insomnia, anxiety, um, feeling like, you know, just, just feeling like an emotional wreck, so to speak, as some people will put it, that's a low progesterone issue. So you have to ovulate mm. to get to progesterone because a temporary endocrine structure called the corpus luteum has to be formed. That makes your progesterone. And progesterone is our chill out hormone. We calm, we feel calm. We feel in love with our life. We get really great sleep. Um, it also increases your metabolism slightly. It also increases your appetite, but um, it can increase your metabolism by like five to 10%. So um, with that, 
if you're not getting enough progesterone, you definitely can fill those effects. Progesterone is also important for our emotional memory and solidifying emotional memory. So um, it's not just for people listening. It's not just memory. It's about like how people make you feel, how like in these relationships, like, and I just think that is so, so important for us to recognize. It's also part of the myelin sheath. So it's going to be involved in mm. neuroplasticity. It's a super important hormone. So um, yes, with the if you don't get to ovulation, you're not going to get sufficient progesterone. When you're in menopause, it's going to be up to your adrenal glands via DHEA to make your estrogen and your testosterone. And you're not going to have progesterone to the levels that you had when you were ovulating, which progesterone can actually block you in the bedroom. Um, and so it basically, if you think about it from a biological perspective, the body's goal is uh, you ovulate and you have sex to get pregnant. And if that's not your goal, we just don't tell your body. It's okay. Um, but progesterone, once you've ovulated, progesterone comes up. Progesterone is like, you had your chance to do that. This is where you're like, I'd rather get into sweatpants than get into their pants. Like, I just want to cuddle. <laughs> I just want to like, you yeah. know, have a really good cuddle session. Like these may be your interests. And so um, one, your partner's advances may fall on deaf ears. And so you just have to let them know. Like I was really into you because I was ovulating and now hmm, not so much because progesterone's up. Postmenopausal, you're going to have estrogen and testosterone coming by way of the DHEA from your adrenal glands. You're not going to have that cyclical progesterone blocking effect. So that can be another thing that's going on. I will say that what gets tricky after menopause is without sufficient estrogen, the vaginal tissue can become friable, so easy to tear. It's not as plump, it's not as healthy, and self-lubrication can be an issue. So um, mm. I say in the book, I don't know, like every single chapter, like lube is for everyone because there's so much stigma around it. And yet it's so important for making sure there's no friction. Friction is painful and also can damage tissue and nobody likes that. Um, and we don't want to have a session that is traumatic for the tissue or the nervous system in any way because the body, the body remembers that. And uh, the other thing is that estrogen is what helps with making the, the feeding. So it makes with the, uh, the glycogen, which is the sugar that feeds the lactobacilli. The lactobacilli mm. are the organisms that produce acid and keep the va vaginal pH acidic as it should be. Semen is basic, uh, so that can disrupt your pH. But overall, even if you're not sexually active, you can still have your pH disrupted. And so this is where hormone replacement therapy using a topical estrogen, usually estriol, which is E3, can be really right. beneficial for maintaining the health of the tissue. We don't want to have vaginal atrophy happening where the tissue shrinks and it becomes really tight and painful. Sex aside, it's just painful. Things can become so dry that they're painful. So this is an important thing to be aware of that if your sex life shifts in a negative way or you're just like, things really hurt down there, there are therapies that can be employed. Yeah. How do you determine if hormone therapy is right for you? Are there certain hormone tests that you can go get in consultation with your doctor to determine whether or not you know, some of these topical estrogen creams or et cetera are, are, are appropriate for you? It is very hard to test these hormones and know like definitively. It's, this is a situation where women's stories, their lived experience, their symptoms actually tells us a lot. And you can go 
Um, so when it comes to vaginal health and what I was talking about with estriol, you can go off of that. Um, we were, when we use this, it's sometimes E3, which is a really weak estrogen, um, and you don't need a whole lot of it to get those benefits. Um, and then in terms of like, so this is for like, uh, you know, we're talking about estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. With progesterone, we can do testing, but in perimenopause, because it can be so hit or miss, it's usually a situation where we go off the symptoms and what's taking place to prescribe that progesterone. And then once your period is stopped, you are now in menopause. That's where we can evaluate again for estrogen. When it comes to thyroid hormone replacement therapy, that we do need lab testing on. Um, and it's very important for people to understand we need to test and then we need to, if we're going to give medication, we need to test again in about six to eight weeks. That's how long it takes the pituitary to adapt. And sometimes doctors are like, oh, we'll just start you on this and you'll be fine. And people are like, I'm not fine. I'm like, did they retest you? No, they didn't say anything about that. We need to retest and make sure that we have the right amount of medication. Symptoms are super important in thyroid health, but it's not usually enough to understand, like, have we hit our target? Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so this is a question that came up um, numerous times, and it relates to period duration. So typically, we think of a menstrual cycle as being approximately a lunar cycle, 28, 29 days, more or less. Um, when is a period considered irregular or abnormal in terms of duration mm -hmm. or frequency, okay. or maybe I should say frequency, like every 20 yeah. days versus every 40 days, et cetera. I love that you clarified that because this is often where people get confused. It's why I have a menstrual cycle chapter and then a period chapter because yeah. the period, um, the period length, that's, that's different. Like how long you bleed. We want to see... You know, it's typically, you know, anywhere from three to five days on average, um, going beyond seven or less than two, that's when things can be a problem. So that's the period. But when we're talking about a cycle, if you're going longer than 35 days, that's where we need to investigate. Now, maybe we might find 37 days is your regular, but we still need to investigate because that can be a sign of PCOS. Um, and we need to just look into that and make sure that like, all is well, and that is in fact your normal. So if we go beyond 35 days, or if we're dipping less than 25, certainly less than 21 days in a cycle, that's problematic. So, um, you know, we people will say like, oh, we typically want to see at least 26 days. Um, there are some women who have regular 23-day cycles. They're having a luteal phase that is, is, you know, 10, 11 days. That is considered normal. It's when the period, you know, the cycle might be 21 days or, you know, from the time to ovulation. So, you know, so we count from ovulation until the next period. That's the luteal phase. If we're seeing that that is, you know, more like eight days, seven days, like it's less than 10, that's not normal. We've got progesterone issues. And this all can be very common to see in perimenopause where suddenly your cycles were, they were the 28 days only though, you know, a small percentage actually have 28 days, but maybe you were that person. And now they're like 24, 23, 22, 21, like, okay, we're not, you know, if we're not regularly ovulating, what could also be going on is that we're not making sufficient progesterone because you can have 
like a one-off anovulatory cycle where you don't ovulate, but it's less common. You won't have frequent periods otherwise. Um, and then on the flip side, you might have an anovulatory cycle. So you haven't ovulated yet. And now you're like, I'm on day 38, what's going on? And then you suddenly have a very heavy period. That's because estrogen was left to stimulate that endometrial lining for a longer period of time. And now your periods are suddenly heavier and they're coming like less frequent. I think you mentioned in the book at some point that progesterone is also a diuretic. So is, is low progesterone um, sometimes the cause of uh, bloating, for example, um, because you were essentially lacking that diuretic response that progesterone might otherwise give you? Yeah. So it can be one or two ways with progesterone, really. So yeah too low. You can have bloating. You can have that water retention filling like in your hands and your feet. Um, and then on the flip side, if you're making sufficient progesterone, it will relax the, so it's, it's, it's great at relaxing everything, right? But it will relax the intestines. So things don't move. And so, um, your food can sit there longer. And so that can result in bloating because the bacteria are like, yeah, we get to munch on this a little bit more and we're going to produce gas right. as a byproduct. Um, which is why some women before their periods, they feel constipated or they have difficulty with stools. And then once their period comes, thanks to prostaglandins, which are their hormone-like chemicals, they stimulate the uterus to contract. Super awesome for getting a baby out, for shedding endometrial lining. But if our diet is higher in omega-6 fatty acids, they're made from omega So if it's higher in omega-6, they're really potent. And so that can cause contractions of the bowels as well. Because they don't care. They're like, everybody contract. And now people are like, did I, did, did I just poop a month worth of food? Like what actually happened here? And it was like yeah. progesterone, that prostaglandins, and now you, you're you're in the bathroom for a while on the first day of your period. Mm. Would you advise um, in terms of endogenous diet consumption, would you advise people to eat a lot of fiber, I guess just in generally, but also specifically on the front end of their period to um, to sort of address bowel function? So we all should be aiming um, as women for at least 25 grams of fiber every day. There has been some research showing that certain autoimmune conditions that more fiber is actually problematic for them. So you definitely want to evaluate what's true for you. But that fiber is not only going to keep your gut healthy, the microbiome healthy, it's going to also help you move out your estrogen that you no longer need. So it's super important right. for um, your hormones overall to keep your bowels healthy, to keep your gut healthy overall and to be consuming fiber. Um, I actually have, so when people get the book, I it's a huge book, as you know. Um, yeah. If you've got the audio, it's like 15 hours. It's a giant book. It's like 126,000 words, and there is no meal plan or recipes in there because we couldn't fit it. And so at drbrighton.com slash is this normal, you can actually, I just wrote a digital cookbook to go with the book because I'm like, this is, this is necessary. My editor's like, we can't fit it. So like, we can't. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it's so hard to talk to people about making dietary shifts. And I structured it. So it goes along with the menstrual cycle. If you're still cycling and it takes you through 
what to eat each week of your of your cycle. If you're not cycling, you can jump in anywhere and it's totally fine. If you're postmenopausal, it all will still help you because it's helping with estrogen, progesterone, thyroid, all of your hormones um, all together. And so with the fiber, I think, you know, fiber can be really helpful, but if you are in, you know, the couple of days leading up to your period and progesterone slowing things down, increasing your fiber isn't going to help as uh, because that can actually bulk the stool more. Um, movement, super, super important, getting movement because that's how it's one of the ways that your bowels will actually move. Um, Drinking plenty of water is also going to be important. And sometimes we'll use like a little bit of magnesium citrate to help things mm -hmm. get moving if things are uncomfortable. And then, you know, all throughout your cycle, right? We've talked about omega-3s, super important for getting those prostaglandins in check because not only are they going to contract the bowels, but they're going to cause pretty significant menstrual cramps. And that can be mitigated by eating more omega-3 fatty acids and either supplementing with magnesium or increasing your leafy greens, which are going to have fiber as well. Yeah. So on that topic of fiber, specifically insoluble kind of prebiotic fiber. So you talked mm -hmm. a little about in the book, um, about prebiotics and probiotics and essentially the relationship of, um, between gut health and vaginal health. I thought this yeah. was really interesting and not a connection that I have otherwise ever made. So can you talk about the relationship there between gut health and vaginal health? Yes. So it's so, it's so funny how medicine compartmentalizes everything and is just like ob gastroenterologists, and we don't talk. Right. Like, why would you talk about things? And so with that, your gut is going to house the majority of your microbiome. And there is a subset of that called the estrobilome. And the estrobilome is going to help with processing your estrogen. What's interesting is that it can help with processing estrogen, but estrogen also influences your microbiome. And so your microbiome is shifting over your cycle. So the vagina and the gut, while they are in separate compartments, actually will share organisms. And so organisms can be shared here. But because the gut has this relationship with uh, estrogen as well, as I said before, estrogen is responsible for maintaining the health and the integrity of the vaginal ecology. So we've got the you can share those organisms. Um, everybody, we still wipe front to back. We don't want to share. We, we don't want to choose who we share, <laughs> right. okay? Um, yeah. But we can share those organisms. And then the health of your gut is going to influence by way of um, estrogen, going to be influencing the health of your vagina as well. So maintaining that pH, maintaining that tissue integrity. Hmm. Uh, I think there is a question here that is a good um that follows up just kind of on the comment you just made. So Julia, age 33, here in my hometown of Los Angeles, how often should I wash my vagina and with what soap or products? Never. Never there wash you your vagina, friends. So, But this, <laughs> this requires some clarification. So the vagina is the inside. It handles itself. It needs absolutely no service by anybody. Um, so it's a self-cleaning machine. The vulva is the outside. And usually when people are asking about washing their vagina, what they mean is the vulva. And, you know, to the person who asked this question, no worries. Everybody uses vagina for vulva. And like, that's why I clarify it in the book. So like, we all know what we're talking about. So the vulva being the outside, 
doesn't actually require soap, which sometimes people are like, wait, what? But like, doesn't it smell? It shouldn't. If you're having to smell internally, that's some organism making trouble. We need to investigate. It's not you, it's an organism. So we got to figure that out because that probably requires treatment. But the vulva itself really requires friction and warm water. So that could be your hand or a washcloth. And where you might generate odor, if it's not coming from the inside, is in the groin area. So where your thighs are, because those have sweat glands similar to your armpits, which you might be like, ew, except that like, this is involved in attracting a mate. It serves a purpose, okay? So um, so that might require soap in that area. But the vulva itself, so in the um, the vulva, uh, when we're towards the thigh side, that's the labia majora, the outermost. So in those folds there, washcloth, hand, warm water, that's all that's needed. If you're going to use a soap, it needs to be something gentle and mild, not something like an antibacterial soap that, you know, you'd find in a public restroom to like scrub your hands down. You don't need that. And in fact, a lot of these things can have endocrine disruptors, and this is a mucous membrane. So um, the vagina itself, same tissue as inside your cheek, and we know we can deliver meds via that mucous membrane. So understand that endocrine disruptors and things, those can disrupt the system if you're getting them in the vagina or you're getting them on the vulva. When it comes to things like douching, never did you need to douche. In fact, douching was really a euphemism for family planning. Back before birth control was available, they were like, use Lysol. And like, they didn't say, right. but they were like, you won't get pregnant. Uh, people right. died. Don't do that. And um, it's very disruptive to your vaginal ecology. And you don't want to mess with your vaginal microbiome because that can lead to yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis. Now you have odor, but you also have discomfort, pain, inflammation. Hmm. Yeah. So now that we're kind of hovering a little bit on personal care products and health and beauty aids, um, can you enumerate some of the primary endocrine uh, disrupting culprits that are out there and what we should be looking out for in terms of the products uh, that we use that might cause imbalances uh, mm. hormonally? You know, BPA gets a lot of play. And yet what people don't realize is that when they replaced BPA, it's still the same family of bisphenols. So um, actually this question the other day where someone's like, well, what if my plastic is really old, then all of it's been leached out. I'm like, it's actually worse. Um, it's yeah. actually worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can totally see where you got that from because that would seem to make sense, but that's not actually how it works because the problem is in the plastic itself. The problem is on the receipt paper that we touch, right? All of these things. Um, I mean, BPA was first developed as like possibly being an uh, like estrogen mimic uh, that we you know, mimicking drug that we could give to women. And uh, then it turned out, oh, it works really well in plastics. So with that, that's a big one we have to be aware of is the bisphenol family. Something I feel like is real, it's, we've known about it for a long time. It's very pervasive, but yet hasn't really been talked about is flame retardants. And from mm. the perspective of how detrimental they are to your thyroid health. So long ago in veterinary medicine, they noticed that these flame retardants they were leading to hypothyroidism in dogs, Hashimoto's, and hyperthyroidism in cats, Graves' disease. And what are pets? The mm. smallest creatures in our house living on the floor. 
That's where these flame retardants, they come out of your couch, they're in your pet's bed, they come out of your bed, and they collect in the dust on the floor. This has a negative impact on animals' thyroid, so you better believe it has a negative impact on ours. And as it turns out, it absolutely does. And more research has come out. We need to validate this in human studies. Although, like, when I say that, I'm like, I just was blown away that we live in a country that's like, you have to prove and that doctors get behind this. So you have to prove without a shadow of a doubt that this absolutely is killing and harming people before we'll take it off the market. Um, whereas other countries are like, you have to prove this is completely safe before we'll expose people to it. But right. what we've come to understand is that flame retardants, they can actually make it so your ovaries don't make hormones. They're definitely affecting fertility. Uh, I mean, just by affecting the thyroid, you're going to affect fertility, but it can disrupt your ovaries ability to make hormones. And so um, that's just one area that like, if you are thinking putting your kids in flame retardant pajamas is the safer, but it's not, it's not to so put them in snug fitting pajamas. I tell my patients like, don't even touch those pajamas. Like if you're like in a store, like you, you got to go past that. You just like shimmy past it. Like don't touch any of it. Um, <laughs> right. and then, you know, try to get mattresses. Like we spend so much time in our bed. So if your sleepwear has flame retardants yeah. and then your bed has flame retardants, like we have to think about the compounded effect of these things. Um, and so I wanted to bring that up because I feel like there's a lot of people talking about air fresheners and candles and what's in your mm -hmm. skincare. And we're just not talking enough about how these flame retardants are showing up and that, that we're being exposed at a very young age. No one's ever done a study of like you dress a baby in flame retardants, you put them in a bed with flame retardants, and then you, they stay there for like 12 hours. They get warm, their face is down in the mattress sometimes, and then they do that over your entire lifetime. Like what's the effect of that? Hmm. Yeah, such a great point. Um, I mean, I think of like all of the off gassing that happens like in new cars or it's yeah. almost all of our furniture or as you say, upholstery um, and all of the, the downstream, you know, impacts there. Uh, obviously, I think we we hear more, as you point out, about phthalates and, and parabens in, in mm -hmm. health and beauty aid products. But, you know, this is the thing. It's very, very hard to uh, navigate life <laughs> once you <laughs> kind of are aware of all of these things yeah. because, uh, you know, there's this, there's a phrase called orthorexia. It's generally like applied to, um, you know, people that are so overly concerned about what, what they eat that, you know, you can't even really make it through a day, but you know, there's so much toxicity. If you start to look at, you know, some of the, you know, trace SSRIs that are like in our water, for example, yeah. or the particulate matter in the air, even the glyphosate in the air because of biofuels, you know, it's like, you know, you can become somewhat numb and paralyzed in the face of, of all of the world's problems here. And, you know, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about your work and, and this book in particular is that you're not overly fundamentalist um, or neurotic, particularly about like how we approach our own well-being. That it's like we're gonna, we need to be an active part and an informed part of our own health journey, but it's also not gonna be perfect all of the time. And you need yeah. to cut yourself a break, otherwise you're gonna live in such a cortisol, uh, chronic stress. Um, environment that 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 you're gonna do yourself more harm than good. Um, Absolutely. So I want to. Uh, there's so many different things that I, I want to talk about, and I also want to be mindful of your time. Um, 
you know, maybe you could take us uh, through the core tenets of the 28-day program. Um, what was kind of your thinking going into it? Um, what are sort of some of the primary protocols uh, associated with it? And, um, and how does it impact overall hormonal health? So the book is divided up into three sections. So the first section is your sexual self. The second section is your cyclical self. That's everything hormones. And then in the third section is the 28-day program where I really marry them together. So in that program, I am taking you through week by week. Again, if you're cyclical, this is based on where you're at in your cycle. If you're not cyclical, we're going through and we're still making these changes and making observations so that it's sustainable and not overwhelming. So before you get into that, there's a massive quiz on all of your hormones and helping you understand where your imbalances might lie. That way you're not just trying to chase down everything, but you're really identifying where is it that I need to focus? What are my hormonal issues? And I have a supplemental appendix that is the cyclical relief uh, chart. And so mm -hmm. it takes you through all kinds of protocols of like, if you're having trouble sleeping, if you have acne, like whatever you have going on, so you can really troubleshoot that as well. And so once you take that quiz, you have those results. We get into the program and I walk you through making, so my background's in nutrition. So it's always going to be a nutrition and lifestyle approach. The things that really move the needle, make it so that you don't need doctors. That's what I really want to be focused on. Um, and I do talk about supplements in there as well for people that want to bring on that extra support. And then I take you through week by week and we are making changes to help optimize your hormones. You are working on that foundational, that pyramid that I was talking about without me even telling you, like, you're working on your cortisol right now. You're working on this right now. I'm like, we're just going to do it. And it's going to feel organic to you. And then in each of those phases, we're talking about the sexual health changes that can happen. What's happening with your arousal, your desire, your ability to self-lubricate? Like, that, are, you, are you finding yourself fantasizing more? Are you completely out of the mood? And there's exercises to do around that so that you can really understand do I in fact have a low libido or is this my normal? Um, am I, you know, is there something wrong with me because I'm not into this kind of thing at this phase of my cycle or is that my normal? Because mm -hmm. as much as we're told like, period problems are normal and these things like these other things are normal. We're also told that as women, there's a certain way we should be um, in our sexual life. And that is like the archetype you should be and anything else is abnormal. Um, and how dare you ask a question about it? Because like, we don't talk about that. And so I really wanted to bring that in to help women completely understand themselves and understand what's their normal. But I also wrote the program because if you're someone that's like, look, I just want to like sleep at night and not have hot flashes and not have these issues and I don't care about sex, I got you. Totally fine. And if and when you're ready to come back, you can revisit all of that if that's something you need in your life. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend, uh, a doctor from uh, UCSF, his name is Robert Lustig, and he has a general axiom around health, um, which is protect the liver and nourish the gut. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the liver in the book as one of the primary detox organs, essentially estrogen needs to be broken down and, um, and excreted from the body. Too much estrogen can 
lead to predispositions of certain kinds of cancers, et cetera. Um, are there some dietary protocols that you would recommend first on protecting the liver and the functionality of the liver, and then second to nourish the gut and, and the microbiome? Mm-hmm. So definitely limiting your exposure to environmental toxins, focusing on what you can control. There's so much in our environment we cannot control. Like I cannot control that I was just on a plane and that you're going to get exposed to environmental toxins on a plane. So when I got off the plane, um, actually last night, I ate two cups of cabbage. My husband's like, are you really going to eat all of that? I'm like, yes, I am. I need the glutathione. I need to take care of my liver because I couldn't control that exposure. It was necessary for me to get on the plane. But I control the exposures that are in my house. So what I clean my counters with, what I'm exposed to in the bedroom in terms of like, you know, whether that is the um, pillows and the bed I sleep on or any like lubricants or, you know, any personal care products. So when I put on my face, um, lotions, makeup, all of that, you can really control how your food is coming. I think, you know, it always comes back to like simpler, closer food. Like if your food has to travel further, or if you're even getting takeout, and I'm not sure, sh- I, I love some takeout, but to recognize those food containers, like you're going to get things in plastic containers lined with plastic and you're going to have those exposures. So certainly the less environmental toxins, and I would throw alcohol in that mix as well. I don't, I know nobody loves me when I say that, but that's really hard on your liver. It's really hard on your liver to consume alcohol and, um, you know, even things that are coming in that might be contaminated with myotoxins. So mycotoxins, excuse me. So we want to be mindful of those things. And then we want to support the liver and what it's able to do best. So again, high quality protein, you need amino acids, you need magnesium, you need N-acetylcysteine or uh, glutathione to help with the liver detoxification. Bringing in things like milk thistle, great herb with research to back it, that it can help repair the hepatocytes. So if you were ever in college and binge drinking or, you know, if you were just being mean to your liver and beating it up there a little bit, like milk thistle can really help. Um, So thinking about how many plants can we be eating? Many of those plants are going to bring in the nutrients that your liver needs and that your gut needs as well. And so we talked about fiber, but it's also important to recognize that diversity matters. So it's often, you know, people can find themselves in ruts where they're eating the same foods over and over. That can increase your exposure to pesticides, other environmental toxins. Um, so that's one reason to have variety. But the other reason is that we want to show the microbiome that the environment is plentiful, that there is lots of variety going on. And so this is why a variety of plants Going to like an Asian market and picking up like some of the root vegetables, just ask them like, how do you cook this? What do you do with this? Um, Bringing in those kinds of things, even incorporating like turmeric and ginger. Everybody loves these as a supplement, um, as a powder. I'm drinking turmeric tea right now. So like, I love that too. But the whole root, like actually taking the root and grating it into your food. I love to like... um, throw butter in a pan with red onions and then grate turmeric all over it. And then I crack Mm. eggs on top and I just cook it like Mm. that and eat that. Um, That whole root of the ginger, the whole root of the turmeric, um, that's going to provide you fiber. And that's 
information to your microbiome. So if we start looking at food of like, we want nutrient density, but we also want information. And the information we always want to convey if we want healthy hormones is the environment is abundant. It is full of wonderful, good things and you are nourished. And for anyone listening, if you find that like, wow, like I've had a propensity towards eating like highly processed foods and things like that, you know, sometimes people listen to this and they're like, I feel bad. I feel shamed. I want you to understand. So as someone who has a background in food science and nutrition, uh, they engineer this. They engineer this to gamify your brain. Your brain is designed to seek out the most nutrient-dense food out there. Now, traditional foods are going to be the most calorically dense. Like they're going to have like lots of um, calories when we're talking about, you know, in the hunter-gatherer days. Um, Those would be things that are nutrient-dense. However, in modern society, there's a big mismatch and they can actually gamify the brain to be like, you did a good job. You should seek out this food. Like it's how you're designed. You are designed to seek out that highly palatable, calorically dense food. The problem is, is that it's being delivered void of any nutrients whatsoever. And so I would say, I'd encourage you drop the shame and just take it from the perspective of like, yes, That's exactly what your brain is trained to do. There's nothing wrong with you for having done that. And yet, don't let yourself be be fooled by these food scientists. Yeah. It's essentially your adaptive mechanisms trying to cope with your lifestyle, more or less. Um, Because like you say, we have these neuropods in our gut that send a signal up our vagus nerve to our brain to tell us, oh yeah, more of that. Yeah. Um, But now, you know, obviously big food has engineered foods to trigger those neuropods and to give us this kind of dopamine reward signal to want more of a food that isn't particularly health benefiting or health conferring. So yeah, it's a, again, you, you're smart. I mean, in terms of removing the, the shame, but also don't be gamed. Um, don't be yeah. shamed, but don't be gamed basically. Yeah, put that um, on a shirt. <laughs> put it on a shirt. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you are just such an incredible fount of knowledge. It's amazing um, how much you've been able to pack into your brain over so many diverse uh, topics. And, you know, I, I love when you talk about the kind of diversity within a diet um, because we hear a lot about superfoods. And, yeah, I mm-hmm. can extol the virtues of spirulina uh, for quite a while. And, you know, I take it every morning, et cetera. Um, but to get too caught up on, you know, a superfood or two superfoods in your diet at the expense of this of the rainbow um, yeah. it does not really serve you. Because as you say, we want all those phytochemicals and phytonutrients and polyphenols. Like that's what our our gut and our gut bugs really, really want. They want mm-hmm. that diversity. And so while yeah, it's great to focus on particular foods that might have a a, a benefit. Yeah, you know, for me, I try to eat 30 different vegetables per week. You know, that's my goal. I don't always hit that, but at least that's kind of where that's you know, incredible. Um, that's where I'm focusing. So, you know, you should Instagram again, that. I want to see that. <laughs> I want to see how you yeah. get there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are, I mean, we, I think there's like 2,000, and I could be wrong here because I didn't research this, but I think there's sort of 2,000 edible plants that are at our disposal. Um, and you know, we eat about three or four of them, basically yeah. corn, wheat, soy, sorghum, um, yeah. on a regular basis. So, you know, even eating 30, 
is just a fraction of what's available, um, you know, to us out there. So again, you know, if you can aim for 30 a week, that's a, that's a pretty good goal. Anyways. Um, so much gratitude for your, for your time today. Uh, there's a million questions that I have that hopefully we can continue in an, in another episode, particularly, uh, about the mitochondria. So you introduced some new ideas about, um, hormones in the mitochondria that were oh, yeah. very new to me and very, very compelling. So I encourage anyone else who's interested in that to just to get the book. Um, it's called, is this normal? judgment-free straight talk about your body and um you know you've just really been such a pioneer uh in women's medicine and medicine in general and you've you know fearlessly tackled uh these really difficult and often stigmatized topics that um are so central to women's health and i know you're making a huge difference in a lot of people's lives so thank you so much jolene brighton yeah, thank you. You're you're so sweet. I appreciate all of those words. And I'm so grateful that we got this time together. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule. So I'm super, super grateful that you were able to carve out time to have a conversation with me. So thank you so much. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. And uh, one of the amazing things about my job is that I get my mind blown on a daily basis. And, you know, I really got the That's opportunity for the last... <laughs> 24, 36 hours just to like dive deep into your work. And, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes I think about this metaphor of like, when you, when you bring a, a light out into the darkness, what you actually under realize is how much darkness there is. And so the yeah. more I, 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 I learn and the more knowledge I accrue also, the more I realize, you know, what I don't know. And, um, and for a curious person, um, that's pretty exciting. So thanks for bringing all of that work into my life. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Jolene Brighton. Be sure to check out her new book, Is This Normal? judgment-free straight talk about your body. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation and we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free, no strings attached for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly on email with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.